If you want to hone some new skills this spring, check out Learning with Experts, the global classroom community that brings people together to learn from the best in the business. Their range of courses covers everything from food and drink to photography and gardening. So why not become an accredited garden designer and learn with world-renowned experts, including influential Dutch garden designer Pete Ulof and multi-award winning British designer Tom Stewart-Smith. Or take a course on herb gardening, natural beekeeping or growing veg. You can start whenever it suits and you get to meet other gardening enthusiasts in the sociable online classroom. Visit learningwithexperts.com forward slash on the ledge now for 10% off your first course. That's learningwithexperts.com forward slash on the ledge. Learning with experts, online learning that's guaranteed to lift the spirits. Welcome to On The Ledge Podcast, the podcast about houseplants. I'm your host, Jane Perrone. Greetings to you all, whether you're a first-time listener or an OG fan. I'm still in self-isolation here at On The Ledge Towers, and my plants have been well and truly saving my sanity. When I felt a bit stressed, I've been able to escape down to my greenhouse to do some repotting of various plants and lots of propagating too. So thank goodness for plants. In this week's show, I'm going to be bringing you my talk from the Leaf House Plant Festival, which encapsulates my five rules for house plants and also I answer some questions which hopefully will prove of interest. Plus, I'm answering a question about aphids, those dastardly little creatures that cause problems with our houseplants, and finding a little about their incredible life cycles. Thank you to Kathy, who became a crazy plant person, and Maria, who became a legend this week. Marnie, 77, and Pennywin, both from the UK, left five-star reviews from the show. So pats on the back all round for you individuals. You are all helping to support this here podcast, which is a very welcome and lovely thing. So thank you very much for your support. And if you want to find out how to support the show, it's simple, janeperone.com is the place to go. All the information should be at the bottom of any of the show notes you click on. Whether you want to drop me a couple of quid or leave a review, there are lots of ways to support On The Ledge. You can also buy my merch, t-shirts, mouse mats. Wolf, even Wolf is getting excited over here. <laughs> t-shirts, mouse mats, hats, um, lots of other cool stuff that you can get. I think there might even be a face mask, you know, um, with the On The Alleged logo on it. It's a great way of supporting the show and you can show it off on your Insta as we all love to do. A few weeks ago, I was a guest speaker at the Leaf Houseplant Festival, which took place at the Harborough Eco Village. That's in Market Harborough in the UK, in the county of Leicestershire. And this was a great event, one of the first ones since the UK kind of started opening up after the pandemic. And there were lots of great stalls and the windowsill plant shop, which is in the Eco Village, was also open for business. And there was Soil Ninja was there, which is an interesting UK based business selling substrates for house plants. And it was interesting to have a chat to them. And I gave a talk. And that's what you're going to be hearing in this episode. I'm sure that if you're a regular listener, some of the things I'm going to say will be familiar to you. But if you're a new listener, well, this is a useful episode for boiling down the tenets of how I look after my house plants. And there's also some questions at the end which throw up a few interesting issues and I hope you get something out of that too. 
before we get on to the talk, I'm going to tackle the question of the week, which comes from Laurie and concerns aphids on her string of dolphins. Now, aren't there just so many different string plants out there that it gets rather confusing? I think that string of dolphins is probably referring to curio radicans, which is a trailing succulent, also sometimes known as string of bananas. I kind of like the idea of a string of dolphins, although I'm not sure dolphins would be particularly happy to be on a string. Nonetheless, this particular species, curio radicans, also known as senesio radicans, a close relative of the string of pearls. It's a lovely plant. It's a South African native and it has its moments uh, in terms of you need to make sure this plant doesn't have wet roots, but it can grow into a lovely trailing succulent. If you're looking for aphids on your plant, where do you start and what do you look for? Well, the first thing to say is aphids love a bit of tender new growth. So look first at the newest leaves and the tender buds and growth points on your plant, because that is where aphids will be gathered. Uh, What do they look like? Well, the good thing about aphids is that you can see them with your naked eye, unlike the red spider mite. Unless your vision is very poor, you should be able to spot them on your plants. These little sap suckers have got oval shaped bodies and they'll vary in size because they grow very fast and have lots of babies. But they'll probably be about one or two millimetres long and they can be a variety of different colours. Sometimes they're green or black, yellow, pink and orange. So these are just different species of of the same family, which is the aphidoidea. (laughs) That's really not that easy to say. Aphidoidea. There we go. I've had a go. And oftentimes when you have aphids, you will find that they come along with ants. And the reason for that is that the ants will come along and farm the aphids. Basically, they collect the honeydew, which is the sweet, sticky stuff that the aphids produce. Maybe I'm going to call it a secretion instead of a poo. You can get ants inside as well. In fact, I've got some ants wandering around my kitchen right now. The other thing you get with the honeydew is that they can encourage a black powder, which is a sooty mould that can build up on honeydew secreted areas of your leaves. So there's a few issues with aphids. And it's certainly a pest that you're wise to control. If you're wondering how they've got into your house, well, some of the females can fly. So that's one way they're getting in. And also, if you're bringing in flowers from the garden, um, they can come in on other plants. They will find your plants. And I've found that this spring has been a particularly bad one. So I don't know if that's just me, but aphids are around. Look for clusters of them um, on those growing tips. They have got a pretty hectic life cycle. They can reproduce by what's called parthenogesis, which basically means nothing has to be fertilised in order for babies to be born. Um, they are, and they are born as babies. They're born as young rather than eggs. And their life cycle is extremely short. And some of the aphids will develop wings at different seasons of the year and some will overwinter as eggs on plants outside and some stay active. There are loads, I think there's about 500 species in the UK, so they've all got slightly different things going on. But what you need to know is that they reproduce very, very quickly. The other problem with aphids is they can transmit viruses. They're sucking sap out of plants and obviously their mouth parts are getting right in there in the plant and so they can transmit viruses from one plant to another and that can affect all kinds of things including edible crops and house plants and garden ornamentals so they really are something you should be aware of how can you treat them the simplest thing to do if you see aphids on a plant is just to take your fingers and carefully brush them off you can run the plant under the tap if that's possible you will kill a lot of aphids this way and you will need to repeat the exercise because you probably miss a few and and they will reproduce very quickly, as I've said. 
Normally, if, if you're dealing with garden aphids, I would say, you know, make sure you've got lots of natural con- biological controls out there. So things like lacewings and, and hoverflies, which do brilliant work at controlling aphid populations indoors. That's not <laughs> going to be something you can do. You can use lots of organic di- sprays to to deal with aphids some of them are based on fatty acids or plant oils and these can control aphids quite well you do need to repeat as i've said before with any pest treatment repeat 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 and that will help things like ecoeffective bug control and sb plant invigorator which are all in, available in the uk which are called plant invigorator sprays these can help to control aphids as well it's not considered organic that treatment but it does work on aphids there are neonicotinoid based insecticides that are available for aphids i have never had an aphid infestation that i felt was serious enough to warrant using neonics but that is an option for you if you want to use those kind of chemicals the other thing that you may find with plants that have been affected by aphids and this for me is the most annoying thing about aphids on houseplants is they do promote distorted growth. So I've got some on my Hoya polyneura at the moment and it's making all of those lovely fishtail shaped leaves go all weird. And Laurie, this might be what you're finding on your string of dolphins as well, that the growth of the new leaves is just doesn't look quite right. And that is often due to the presence of aphids it weakens the plant they're not particularly happy in this scenario if i can i tend to remove the distorted leaves and deal with the infestation and then hopefully the plant will kick into growth again and the new growth will be healthy the other thing about distortion is that when a leaf is curled over sometimes that means the aphids can hide inside that leaf and you might not get them with a spray so easily so if you have got distorted leaves do check all sides of them to make sure there aren't any aphids hiding there when they're sucking the sap they're also leaving behind a little gift in the form of some toxins that basically affect the development of the leaf which is rather annoying i think you'll agree now if you've listened to my biological control episode you may be wondering what biological controls are available for aphids i think we did mention these briefly in the episode you can get lace wings their larvae eat a heck of a lot of uh, aphids so they're a good choice or indeed um, ladybirds and these are popular solutions the only thing is obviously in the home rather than in a greenhouse setting are they going to land in the right place Um, are they going to get right to the source of the problem and have you got enough plants to deem it worthwhile investing in this biological control those are the things to think about with biological controls I'm not sure where I would put aphids on my sort of pest top five when it comes to houseplants. This spring, I'd probably put them at the top because they have been really troublesome. And I think the problem is that because I don't treat them with the seriousness that I treat, say, seeing some thrips or some mealybug, is they tend to then be allowed to proliferate. And then I get distorted growth and the rest is rather annoying. So do keep an eye out for aphids. Laurie, I would suggest that you spray them off to start with and just look at that new growth all the time for any signs of a presence of aphids and deal with them as quickly as you can. And that way you can get them under control quite easily. And if they do decide to start producing winged individuals, then that makes them life a lot easier for them to spread to other plants. So nip aphids in the bud is my message on this front. I hope that's helped, Laurie. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, then let me know. On The Ledge podcast at gmail.com. Send me pictures, information, everything you can think of. Your inside leg measurement. No, don't bother with that. Just the details of your plants would be great. And now it's time to get on with my talk from the Leaf Houseplant Festival. Do check out the show notes as you listen for the pictures that I mention in this chat.
thank you very much for coming and listening to me waffle on about plants. Um, so I'm the host of a podcast called On the Ledge, which is a houseplant podcast, and it's been going since February 2017, so I'm quite tired now. Uh, I've done 186 episodes um, and covered everything from James Wong's apartment to <laughs> to soil science and everything in between. And what I'm going to try to do in this talk is just give you a bit of a potted summary, if you'll excuse the pun, of my philosophy of looking after your plants. And then I'm going to leave lots of time for questions. As I've just said, I do have on this table some lovely plants, but also some little tiny baby plants that I've brought with me. I'm just going to tell you what they are before we start. So um, if you ask a question, you can come and take a plant and you can come and take some on the ledge stickers if you want to. Uh, the plants I've got here are, I've got uh, a baby, 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 very small Pachyphytum oviferum, which is a lovely jelly bean succulent. I've got two Saxifraga stolonifera, the strawberry Saxifraga, which is one of my absolute favourite plants. I've got two very baby Oh no, actually one very baby Hoya serpanes uh, plant, which is a lovely uh, foliage, tiny fo- leaved foliage plant. And I've got a begonia solimutata, which is uh, another lovely foliage plant. And I've got an agave as well. So there's lots of choice there. At the end, uh, if you ask a question, please feel free to come and take a plant. I will be eternally grateful. And so will my husband. Right. <laughs> so that's who I am. And uh, I hope that things will come to your mind as you, as you listen to me talk. Um, but let's go with the slides. I don't have loads of slides because I don't really uh, favour slides. But please feel free to uh, ask questions afterwards. Okay, so... I've got five rules for houseplant care here. And I think one of the things that frustrates us all, and I'm sure it's not the case at any of the plants sold at this festival, but one of the problems is you go to a garden centre or, you know, you see a cheeky plant in the supermarket that is an impulse buy, and you look at the label and it says foliage plant. And that's really annoying because... That doesn't help you at all because, you know, this is a foliage plant, the lovely uh, orange chlorophytum, and this is a foliage plant, the lovely Sansevieria, and this is a foliage plant, the Monstra, and yet care is quite different for them all. So just because it's foliage doesn't mean the care is going to be the same. And oftentimes also, and this is uh, one of the things that I rant on about occasionally, sometimes the label's have a name but the name is wrong and that's also really annoying so one of the things you can do is obviously put your picture of your plant on google lens or ask in a facebook group and find a name but there are also lots of things you can do before you even get to the stage of identifying that plant to just look at it and figure out a little bit about how to care for it and what do we start what are we looking at in terms of figuring out the signs the plant is giving us that tell us where it might have come from and how it lives. So the picture we've got here on the left-hand side of the screen is cacti and succulents. Now, this is really quite a broad group of plants, but the one thing we can say about all of them is that they've got succulent leaves. So fleshy, fleshy, succulent leaves. And the reason why they're fleshy is because inside each of those leaves, there's a special kind of tissue called parenchyma and a bit of a technical word but it's a useful word because that basically means it's storing loads of moisture of uh, water and nutrients being stored in those leaves so we know that succulent plants are adapted to cope with periods where there might not be a load of moisture at the root level they're adapted to periods of drought so that's telling us a little bit about how we might be looking after them we also can tell from looking at those cacti and succulents that a lot of them have got either furry surfaces or flowery surfaces or grey surfaces, all of which reflect the sun really nicely. So they're used to high light conditions. 
Now, I mean, if we, if we get deeper into the world of succulents, you realise that not all succulents require exactly the same amount of highlight. But generally speaking, your sunniest windowsill is going to be the place to put those cacti and succulents because they're used to a really highlight environment. And even the sunniest windowsill in your house will be nothing if you got a light meter and you measured that sunniest windowsill against outside on a sunny patio light levels inside are always going to be less because you've got so many things in the way, i.e. your walls and the window and the curtains. So you need lots of light for those succulents. On the other end of the the slide, we've got the maidenhair fern, and it's kind of the opposite end of the scale in that you've got this incredibly tracing paper-thin leaf. I don't know if any of you have tried to grow maidenhair ferns, but... They really, do, <laughs> they really do challenge a lot of houseplant growers because those very, very fragile leaves are used to having a nice moist environment, a constant set level of moisture. They need moisture around the roots and they need moist air and some of us struggle to provide that. Because they're paper thin, those leaves can't store water in the same way that the cacti and succulent leaves can and therefore uh, they need they actually they do really well in a self-watering pot that's what i'd really recommend if you want to grow a maidenhair fern or a lot of the other members of the the fern family a self-watering pot is a really good way to go and it doesn't have to be an expensive one self-watering pots are quite pricey but you know you can just get a piece of nylon cord about 10, 15 centimetres long, or a couple of pieces ideally, stick one end through the bottom of the pot and stick the other end into a vessel of water underneath the pot, and you've got yourself a very simple self-watering pot. So we've got to those two extremes there, and in the middle, I just put this picture of a, a stag's horn fern slightly to remind myself of my own past errors. <laughs> so the stag's horn fern, it's another kind of fern, but it lives a very different life. It's actually got really quite thick, leathery leaves, and I don't know if you can see there, but it's actually mounted onto a board, and that's because this plant is an epiphyte, which means a plant that grows on another plant, basically. And that means it's got quite a small root system. It doesn't have a huge amount of roots going hither and thither. Its root system is small. It's in the the nook of a tree. And it's used to having moisture, but it's used to that moisture running away quite quickly. So, again, that's how we learn how to look after a stag's horn fern, dunk it in a bucket of water once a week, and make sure it drains thoroughly. And hopefully, um, you do well. Unfortunately, I killed mine because I left it outside for the summer and forgot to bring it in. And I, it's my biggest plant regret to this day that I killed that plant. So, yeah, my, that's RIP, Sags Horn Fern. I haven't grown another one since because I just can't bear the thought of killing another one. But they are actually quite easy plants, if you <laughs> I say that. Um, if you remember to bring it in before the frosts, um, they're actually quite easy plants because they have got these leathery leaves that appreciate water but they don't really worry if they um, have a dry period because the plant is adapted to grow in those conditions where water drains away very quickly and then wait till the next bout of rain so that's my first suggestion for you is that look just look at the plant the more time you can spend looking at your plants the better and I know you may sort of think well you know I've put them on this very high shelf. If you've got plants that are new or that you're not familiar with the care regime for, put them somewhere really right in front of where you are working or doing the washing up or making a cup of tea. And you'll find that you very quickly spot things that you wouldn't necessarily spot if you had them on a high shelf. I know hanging plants are really, really popular right now, but the trouble is if you're not quite sure on the care front, you won't spot that very first thrip or that very first bit of wilting that's starting trouble. So you have to be careful um, to make those plants that you're most worried about very accessible so you can see things as they occur. We worry a lot about the leaves. I get a lot of questions about, all oh, the leaves are looking a bit sad, I'm worried about... And the first thing I say is, have you looked at the roots? Because the roots are actually just as important as the leaves possibly more important actually because it's quite possible with certain plants to actually kill the whole uh, 
set of foliage and the plant still be very much alive and able to reshoot from the roots. Um, I don't know if you've ever grown one of these guys, the Marantas, and, and had trouble with spider mites, but this plant, I had one of these recently, except it was the typically the rarer uh, white form of this, white-ribbed form, and it got spider mites, and it was only small, and all the foliage died off, and I was like... I was just so angry. I was so angry that I'd nearly killed this plant. But I thought, no, I think that this has got potential to re-sprout. You know, it's growing out of... Um, it's got some kind of rhizome in there, which is a storage organ, which is storing water and nutrients. I think it's going to regrow. So I wrapped it in a clear plastic bag, and I put it on the windowsill, and I waited still grumpy for a long time. And finally it reshooted. So, like, don't give up hope, particularly with plants that have got some kind of chunky bit of a root system. You can regrow. Um, so roots are really, really important. And the picture here shows a couple of different types of uh, root ball, a couple of different species uh, and their root ball. So on the left, we've got an aloe vera, which uh, was one I repotted a while back. And on the right, we've got, I think that is a tenanthi, which is another member of the family that this plant is in, the prayer plant family. And we can see that we've got the sort of the major roots, and then you've got little roots going off that. And most plants have this amazing sort of network going right down to a kind of very, very small level of tiny root hairs. And that's why they can draw up nutrients from the soil and get the, the moisture they need from the soil. But it's really important that we give them the room they need to do that and the right substrate. So if you look at your roots, you can tell a lot. And that's why I always say, if you've got a problem with the leaves, have a look at the roots because that will tell you what's going on. It's quite difficult because lots of times people say, well, my plant's wilted, it needs more water. But unfortunately, water... Uh, Overwatering can look very much like underwatering. So the classic one is really the peace lily, where you get it wilting, and you think, oh, it's wilting, it needs more water. You put some more water on it, it keeps wilting. And actually what's happening is the roots are drowning in water, air can't get to those roots, and as a result, the plant is wilting because there's no transport of moisture up to the top of the plant, and down at root level, things are rotting. So that's gonna, what's that going to look like? Well, that's going to look like smelly sliminess around those roots it's not going to look very uh, attractive it's not the roots aren't going to be firm um, and they're going to show signs that rot has set in um, so that's one thing you need to look out for if your plant is wilting don't just assume without touching the soil that it needs more water and when you also look at the roots you can look at the situation in terms of does this plant need a bigger pot and this is a bit of a judgment call. People often say, oh, plant, this plant, this species likes to be snug in its pot. Well, how snug? How, how do I know when, it's <laughs> when it really needs a new pot? My rule is always to have a look at that root ball and to see what surface area of soil you can still see and make a judgment as to whether it needs a new pot. When you do repot, though... Don't think the bigger is better. So you often see like a really tiny plant with a really massive pot. Somebody thought, I'm going to really give, give it a luxurious big pot because, you know, um, it, it deserves it. And that's the worst thing the plant doesn't want you to do. Because what you end up with then is a tiny little plant and its little root system in the middle. And around it, every time you water, you're ending up with a kind of like sump of water that doesn't actually have anywhere to go. There's no roots able to pull moisture from that area. And so that tends to make plants quite unhappy. So then people say, put it one size up. Have you ever heard that phrase? Put it one size up. And I go, what does that actually mean? Like, what sizes? Someone tell me about pot sizes. I don't know any, uh, what the rule is. Like, is, a, is this a size 10? Like, where's the, there's numbers on the bottom? I don't know. I've never figured that out. I think every pot company has a different system. So what my judge on that is just to say, okay, if I can put the two pots together, one smaller pot inside larger pot, if I can just get my finger in between the two pots, that's probably about right. 
unless it's a massive pot, in which case it might be, you know, my fist if it's a really large, you know, a really large container. But generally, you just want to give the plant that little bit of extra room to put its roots into without allowing it to have this big, cold, wet ring of compost around it. So have a look at those roots. Don't be afraid to poke your finger into the pot. People often say, well, your finger will be able to tell if it's moist. Well, no, your finger does not sense moisture, actually. But what you will be able to do is take your finger out and look at the end of your finger and see if there's some moist compost on there or if it's completely dry and there's nothing there. That will tell you whether there's moisture right down at that root level. And that is the key thing for um, when you're deciding whether a plant needs watering, not whether it's moist at the surface, but whether it's moist right down in that, at that root level. So always don't be afraid to poke your finger in. You can get a moisture meter. I find them quite inaccurate. Um, a lot of the cheap ones are, are not that accurate. I kind of prefer to rely on my finger. If you don't like the idea of using your finger, just get a wooden kebab stick or a wooden lollipop, stick it in there for about half an hour, Pull it out and see if it's damp or if it's totally dry. That does the same thing for you. So while you're rooting about in there, you can also do your houseplant a favour. If it doesn't need repotting, and just have a little bit of a poking session. It's good for moments where you need a little bit of uh, de-stressing. Just get a knitting needle, kebab stick or something, and give that root ball a poke. Because what happens when you have a plant in a pot for, for a few months... It tends to slump. You're losing the air holes in there that the plant, the roots need to survive. So you get this compacted compost, which is not good in terms of absorbing more water. So just poke a few holes in there. It's quite satisfying. You won't do anything too damaging to the roots, and you will introduce some air. So it's quite, it's quite therapeutic, I find. Okay. Um, yeah, so I've, I've, already, I've already... I've told you everything from this slide already. Yeah, use your finger. And if you've got a pot that is um, really quite small, um, not a massively heavy pot, what you can also do is just lift it up. Um, I do know people who literally weigh their pots to find out, so they've got a constant record of how much water's in there. I don't have time to do that. I really don't have time. But you can get to know from feeling a pot, if it's a plastic pot, you'll be able to lift it up and go oh yeah, that's feeling a bit light. And that probably means that it needs watering. Water is quite heavy and adds to the weight of a pot quite considerably. So you can just do a little experiment. And if your hand shoots up, I mean, you know, I'm feeling these two. That one feels considerably heavier than that one. So I think this one is probably more in need of a drink than this. So you can use little techniques like that. And you'll just start to be more aware of really small elements of looking at your plants and deciding when they need moisture. I often find, particularly with cacti and succulents, that they get to a point where they just look a little bit dull and a little bit wan, and that's the point at which they definitely need a drink. And you can tell also, you know, that with the string of pearls on the left-hand side there, when they start to go slightly, slightly, slightly shriveled, that's when you know they need a drink. You need to be particularly careful with cacti and succulents uh, in the winter time because those root systems that they've got, which are designed to be very around very free-draining compost, if you water them too much, then you rot those roots really easily. This time of year, though, don't be afraid to water your cacti and succulents because they do actually like a decent amount of water. If your cactus or succulent just hasn't grown in about two years, it's probably because you've not been giving it any water. So do, uh, don't, don't be afraid to water generously when it's the summer months and your plants are growing. Just make sure that you don't leave a load of water in the bottom of the pot um, and that you check the cash pot for water because that's the other thing that's a lethal thing to do. By doing that, you're basically waterlogging the plant. There's no air getting to those roots and uh, rot will set in. Uh, the picture on the right is one of my favourite um, species within the Gesneriad family and it's a primulina. I just say this to everybody just because I want everyone to grow them because they're amazing. That one's not in flower but they produce these beautiful flowers and they're really easy beautiful plants. So that's my little speech about Gesneriads. Um, okay so the, going, going back to my point about keep plants where you can see them. This is my windowsill. Now this looks totally different now because it's changing all the time but I just chuck any plants up here that need something in the way of daily 
attention. They might be poorly, they might be something propagating, they might be something I'm just waiting for it to come into flower because there I can see exactly what's going on when I'm doing the washing up. I, I mean, I don't do the washing up particularly well <laughs> as a result, um, but it means you can just see what's happening to every single plant and you will just spot things that you never would have spotted otherwise if the plants were at ground level or if they were high up, it's so, so handy. So keep your plants where you can see them. On the right-hand side there, I'll just mention this in case anyone hasn't come across it before. I've got three, four plastic, clear plastic pots. Uh, If you've ever struggled with propagating things or you want to do a bit of propagation experimentation, lots of things do really well just chucked in a plastic hummus pot with uh, with a tiny dribble of water at the bottom you'd be amazed the things i've grown in there i started off doing this with peperomias which was the plant that was um recommended to me when i went to visit uh, a peperomia collector but actually it works with loads of things including unexpected things like some cacti and succulents will grow really well uh, grow roots really quickly and well in those pots um, also good for ferns and begonias if you struggle to remember to, uh, to keep your propagation uh, unit looking good, then that's a really good solution. So check that out if you, uh, if you fancy. If you've got a few empty hummus pots, you can start your own propagation station. Okay, and then the final one is, this is a common thing that plant parents get bamboozled by, is they, they come to me and they say, Actually, there's two categories of people who come to me. Category one is this person, and they say, I bought this plant, but it's got a yellow leaf, and I'm really worried about it. What am I going to do? Nothing. It's fine. Um, When you've got yellowing leaves, you need to think about what leaf is it, and how many leaves are yellowing, and where are they on the plant. Now, if it's the oldest leaf on the plant, and if it's one, then it's just the plant saying this has done its turn it's produced it's performed photosynthesis beautifully and now it's going to retire from life the plant has withdrawn all of its resources from that leaf and that leaf is going to die and you know in nature that would be obviously landing on the ground and going back into the soil and providing nutrients for the next load of leaves so don't worry if it's one leaf and people panic about this the other group of people that get in touch with me are the people who've got a literally a dead stick who say what do I do? My plant's not looking very good. <laughs> I say, just, uh, there's nothing you can do. But we tend to go to these, ex- two, these two extremes. But if you've got one yellow leaf, don't worry. It's probably fine. If you've got a lot of yellow leaves and they're not the oldest leaves on the plant, then you might need to be more concerned. Now, when I say oldest, well, wh- how do you know how old the leaves are? Well, on something like this is a, is a monstera, Usually you can tell because the, the early leaves are the smallest and the simplest. They usually haven't got any holes in them um, and they're the ones that the plant produce first. Um, depends on your plant's growth method and, and how, it, how it grows. So, for example, on something like this, it would probably be the outer leaves on the rosette that would be the oldest because it's growing from the centre. So have a look at the form of your plant and that will help you to know how old the leaves are. The other thing I would say, if you, if you do have more than one yellowing leaf, then look at your watering, but also always, always, always look at the backs of your leaves because that's where the pests like to hang out. And get yourself a magnifying glass or a botanist hand lens and have a look at the backs of the leaves and that's where you'll see the trouble brewing. And it might be something like spider mites, which usually manifests itself as little grainy bits on the back of the leaves which rather unpleasantly are the shed skins of the spider mites as they grow um, uh, or you might see some little black sort of dash like creatures which are thrips or you might see something like a group of aphids the backs of the leaves are very educational so check out the backs of the leaves and make sure you haven't got a pest problem um, and that way hopefully you can remove those old leaves but they won't do any harm to your plant it's just your plant doing its thing it's like us sort of shedding dead skin from our bodies it's just part of uh, life's rich tapestry so uh, that is my five rules and that's my podcast list i'm coming up on half an hour so i will hopefully have some questions from you guys um i hope that's thrown up something in the way of a question but um 
If you haven't got a question, just make something up because you get a free plant. <laughs> I would like to start, actually. So here at Leaf Houseplant Festival, our theme is houseplants and happiness. So why do houseplants bring you happiness? It's oh, a really good question. Well, I think that for me, I just love seeing plants thrive and just boasting about it endlessly and being so pleased and it's actually quite disappointing because my family just don't care they just I'll be like have you seen this amazing flower and they're like yeah mum whatever but I just love having plants do cool stuff that I can then look at and observe and just taking a tiny piece I mean you know I, this Miranda that I grew it was just so exciting to see these new leaves coming out of literally nothing and regrowing um, so that for me is what's really exciting is seeing those those changes happen and I just love pottering about with them and um, learning more about them which is probably good because I do spend a good proportion of my week um, talking about them and talking to experts the other great thing about my podcast is if ever I've got a question about something I can just literally go oh I'm just going to go and have a chat with somebody because um, it's my job which is very handy so um, I do sort of often ask listeners to come up with ideas for episodes and, and they usually do because they want to learn about some specific type of plant but it's been a lifelong thing for me I've been doing it since I was a little kid so I can't imagine not doing it but I'm also very excited when I see people discovering houseplants at any age um, and it's it's enormous fun and you know it's something can set you off like you can be just you know you go into a garage and you see a, a, a really abandoned looking plant and you pick it up and you start tending it and then you know 10 months later you've got a jungle in your house i'm sure some people can relate to that so yeah it's a lovely thing to do and i'm really excited that more and more people are are adopting uh, the houseplant growing hobby so yeah thank you for uh, supporting this festival and hopefully getting more people on board with that all of that scene okay hello (laughs) thanks jane how do you feel about showering with your plants Oh, that's a really good one. I don't have any plants in my shower. I'm quite an accident-prone person. And I think I'd probably end up with disastrous things happening. I think um, it's a really nice idea to do the whole spa day thing. I mean, I'm kind of spoiled in that I've got a garden and I've got a potting shed. So I, if I've got to do that kind of process of taking plants outside and really washing them down, I do that outside. I, I can appreciate not everyone has that space and so it's fine to put all your plants into the shower it is good to wash off dust and you'll be washing maybe washing off some pests in the process if you live in a hard water area I don't know what the water's like around here but it can leave you with marks on the leaves so you know if you want to get a little bit um sort of over the top you know you you ideally want to be getting some rainwater or some distilled water just for that washing process just so you don't get those mineral salts kind of streaks left on the leaves and yeah i mean showering with my plants yeah i have the shower incredibly hot and soapy so i think i think generally that would be a bad idea for me personally but i I can see why people want to have an environment in their bathroom that's got full of greenery and the bathroom can be a really good place for plants It, it tends to be humid and so if you've got plants that need humidity it's definitely worth looking at putting them in your bathroom for a while and just bear in mind that often light levels are quite low in your bathroom so you can't necessarily provide enough light for them so it's a balance but the other thing you can do is have like I mean it's a great idea to have a couple of the same plant like you know you've got these two plants and you can switch them in and out of a low light area like the bathroom if you don't have a big window in there um, and have a lighter place to put the other one and that one's kind of recovering and then you move and you switch them around and that way your plant will do better in that low light place but yeah washing your plants down is a really good idea and for pests people often want a silver bullet solution for pests like I want to fix thrips now well no you're not going to do that but if you wash them every single day you will solve the problem eventually it's just a a long road (laughs) yeah i mentioned it to some some people this morning in fact i occasionally throw plants in the shower and just a cool shower just kind of it's also good for it's also good if you're watering your plants with tap water and you have hard water it's a really good idea to wash that substrate through every now and again because you get a build-up of mineral salts in the soil which can be problematic for some plants so just washing the soil through will sort of hopefully solve that problem and if you want to avoid that altogether if you can 
can collect rainwater to use in your houseplants. That's kind of the Dom Perignon of the <laughs> houseplant world in terms of watering, uh, if you happen to have access to a water butt or whatever. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I use because I've got lots of water butts. But I appreciate not everyone has that option. But, um, yeah, it's... I mean, I'm, I've got a vision now of you in your shower with all these plants around you. <laughs> Not in there with them, yeah. No, I think it's a great idea. And, you know, there's nothing more depressing than a dusty houseplant. I just think it's, that's, you know, if you see someone going to someone's house, and I say this, I'm probably, like, going to go home and realise that I've got lots of dusty houseplants. But I did actually get my, um, one of my Sansevierias out yesterday. It was covered in spider webs, not spider mite, spider webs. I was like, oh, I'm a bad plant parent, but it didn't care. (laughs) Particularly good for, for big specimen cacti. Because how else are you going to get the dust out from in between the spines and so on? So yeah. quick scoosh in the shower. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, people say, oh, use a paintbrush. I'm like, I ain't got the time for that. I've got time to, like, be brushing my cacti. Like, yeah, exactly. Just give them a blast and they'll be absolutely fine. <laughs> okay, anyone else got a question for me? Come on, ask a question. Look, I've got all these beautiful plants here. I want somebody to take one of these. Look, shall I tell you a bit about these plants that you could win? Okay. Give me a question and you can come and get a plant afterwards. So we just bought an Oxalis triangularis from the festival. We've not had one before, so we just wondered if you could give us any tips. Yeah, really good plant. What you have to bear in mind with this plant is that it might lose leaves in winter, but that's okay because this is one of these plants that grows from, I don't know what officially what it's called. Is it a corm? I think it might be a corm or a bulbill oxalis. So it grow, it's got an underground storage organ, which is really handy because it means those leaves can die back. And oftentimes oxalis in certain conditions in the winter will start to lose some leaves, but it will come back. And in fact, I had one, not that species, one with the ridiculous Latin name of Oreo reticulata. <laughs> anyway... It died back completely and then I sort of kind of forgot it was there and I ended up kind of using some of the soil for something else and now I've got it popping up in all my plants because these tiny little bulbs have got in with everything else. So, But that's a really good thing because it, it, it just means that you know that if you lose a few leaves, don't panic. You've got a choice to make with that plant. Do you like small pink flowers? I don't like small pink flowers, so I just pull them all out brutally. Some people love them, so you've got a choice whether you want to do that. If you love the leaves and you want all the energy of your plants to go in the leaves, you can literally just snip off those flowers or even just pull them out. But if you like the flowers, obviously you can keep them going. And other than that, oh, yes, also the leaves are edible. Now, when I warning that they contain um, oxalic acid, so don't eat like a pound of them or anything, but they taste like sort of lem- they taste a bit like sorrel. Don't go eating random houseplant leaves, please, because lots of them are poisonous. You know, like this contains, I mean, it, m- m- almost all aroids are going to be toxic to some level, so please don't go and eat loads of houseplant leaves. But that particular oxalis uh, triangularis, the leaves are edible, um, and you could like put them on a salad it looks quite nice Um, but they're a really good plant and yeah i'm sure you'll love it and just enjoy the the leaves it needs i would say reasonably moist soil don't let it drown but at the same time probably more soil than you'd be looking at for you know a cactus or a succulent those leaves are quite thin and um does it need much humidity or no i mean no in your house it'll be fine unless your house is a very very dry place i'm sure it'll be absolutely fine just stick it on a windowsill and enjoy it really it's not a difficult house plant at all and as i say if it all goes pear-shaped have faith that it will reshoot and what you can do also is you know once it's going you can just take it out of its pot and take off one or two of those little bulbs and just pot them up separately and then it's a nice little gift for somebody so I'm always doing that which is my, why mine never gets any bigger <laughs> because I'm always stealing bits off it but um, yeah it's a great plant so good choice Can I just ask you one other thing when you're talking about cacti and succulents and watering them in the summer we're quite good at not watering them in the winter <laughs> but then when it comes to the summer I don't know how often because I don't want to overwater them in the summer What I would say is with watering cacti and succulents you can give them a really it's better to give them a good soaking and let the compost get 
really soaked and then allow it to dry out rather than just a dribble of water on the surface because if you allow them to to do the the, the first method that way you're encouraging the roots to grow throughout the root ball if you just put a trickle of water on the top it never really penetrates and whether this is true or not i don't know but the the idea is is that you're always kind of encouraging the roots to come to the surface and surface in sort of search of that moisture so yeah with my cacti and succulents i in the summer i will put them in a old washing up bowl or a tray and i'll literally you know fill it with water and let them sit there for half an hour and make sure they're fully they're fully wet drain them off make sure you especially if they're in an outer pot drain them off thoroughly and then put them back and that way you know they've had a good drink and then just observe and wait for the next time that they're it might you know i don't do a schedule like oh it's sunday so i've got a water but just keep an eye on them and when they look like they're getting dry do that again and if they're in terracotta pots which is what i prefer for cacti and succulents the pot will evaporate moisture but it will also take up moisture when you water that way so yeah so it could be quite frequently if it's a little one that's in a in sun and dries out really quickly yeah i mean that's the thing about these small pots like you know these this size of pot dries out really quickly i think small plants are really quite sometimes quite hard because you've got to really keep an eye because that can really dry out fast um, and you're never quite sure um you know you need to observe it whereas a big pot will take a long time to dry out so yeah just observe your plants carefully and yeah in the summer just start tailing it off towards sort of september october and keep your cacti and succulents cool if you can over the winter so you know if they're in a really hot centrally heated room in the winter that's when things like spider mite can take hold so put them to in a cool room and cut back on that watering reflecting the fact they're just they're just having a rest period really marvelous well look come and get like, i want you to come and get a plant please do you want to choose something come and choose something because um I cannot go home with these. So you might, if you like the oxalis, the little round leaf plant with the silver veins is called, yeah, that's called Saxifraga stolonifera, the strawberry begonia. Really nice and produces all these little baby plants on little stems. So it's kind of fun. No worries. Okay. Um, Any other questions for me? Whose is that lovely begonia? Who's bought a gorgeous begonia? It's like it's one of a member of the audience. I love it. I don't know how you feel about naming plants, but it does have a name. It does have a name, or it doesn't have a name. What's its name? It's Lily, because it was given to me by my neighbour, Aaliyah, who her, na- her nieces all call her Lily, so it's Lily, the begonia. I don't name my plants because I don't see them in that way, but I have absolutely no shade for anyone who does, and it's a lovely thing. And if it helps you to put more energy into understanding your plant by naming it, then I think it's a really good thing. I do worry that she's a bit sad, though. So every time, it's popping out new leaves all the time. But as soon as a new leaf comes out, one dies back. Yeah, I mean, that's a real begonia thing to do. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I'm worried about. And so you can probably see how much growth. So it was, excuse me, it was at the top here. And so it's had loads of growth. Each leaf keeps coming out. But then I keep losing leaves. It's not, you know, it's just growing taller and not... It's a cane begonia. So, like, in a way, that's kind of how it goes. So this is begonia, I think it's probably lucerna, a cane begonia, which that's what they kind of tend to do. They like really constant moisture around the roots, begonias. And that also kind of translates into air humidity as well. But it's more important that you don't let them completely dry out. They just protest if they get an erratic watering regime so i would maybe suggest putting it into some kind of self-watering pot system maybe um but also as it gets bigger it just gets easier with with begonias like that like you see the really big ones like that will get six foot tall and it just then as the plant gets bigger it gets easier it's less subject to the yeah it, it will be fine i mean it's looking really healthy it will be fine like i could suggest all crazy things about you know increasing air humidity and stuff but actually it's much better for it to get used to the conditions of your house and yeah it, it should be fine but maybe a self-watering pot might be one way to go with it but yeah begonias do have that tendency hey i'm making a new leaf so i'm gonna kill this one and it's a little bit annoying but um it's a beautiful plant with that lovely um silvery marking which is which is gorgeous which we don't i don't think we really know why plants do that other than possibly uh well there's a few different theories but you know one theory is it's kind of 
mimicking pest damage so that pests go away and think the leaves are already damaged, which is kind of interesting. But begonias are great. I mean, this little begonia I've got in here is called Soli mutata. If you're a terrarium person, please take that because it's a really lovely plant for terrariums. Don't grow it outside a terrarium because you will cry. <laughs> but um, begonias, there are easier ones and harder ones. That is an easier one, the cane begonias, because they don't tend to have such um, fragile root systems and they tend to be more able to cope with conditions in the home. But oftentimes those are really lovely heirloom plants that people have for decades and decades and will give away cuttings of. So it's really nice the way it continues on throughout um, you know, generations. So yeah, it's a nice thing to have, it's a really nice thing to have. Okay, any more questions? I've got more plants here. Come on, guys. Any more questions? Yes, go on, Jeff. <laughs> so like you, I've been growing houseplants for a very long time, probably you know, 40, 45 years. <laughs> um, and it seems to me that plants have kind of come into fashion, come out of fashion, but also that I think we've probably lost some plants that were grown commonly as houseplants uh, in the 60s or the 70s. Are there any plants that you miss now that you would like to see back in cultivation that's a really good point i think swedish ivy is a one that like used to be everyone had a swedish ivy when i was a kid but no swedish ivy is not that popular now despite the fact it's such a good house plant it's an amazingly good house plant really really tolerant and excellent and looks beautiful and i think probably the old cast iron plant aspidistra alatio which is coming back in now actually but i mean there's a lot to be said for the, these plants. They're not called the cast iron plant for nothing, but they're really, really easy, and a lot of them have amazing stories behind them, and you can get some variegated forms too. So Aspidistra latior, but quite expensive to buy because they're so slow-growing is the only downside. And what about you? Any other ones that you... Well, the, the Swedish ivy, definitely. I mean, uh, yeah. actually, we had one on the stall earlier on that somebody yeah. this will be bought and it hadn't occurred to me that actually yeah you very rarely see it in uh, for sale now i don't think i've ever really somebody needs to get onto that <laughs> asparagus ferns as well they don't seem to be as popular as they as they used to be and there are plants which i wish people wouldn't grow or, or sell things like boston ferns which is just awful. They just drop their leaflets everywhere oh, yeah. you see people on instagram with these amazing boston ferns and i just go I don't have time to be sweeping up all those dead leaves all the time. They're really uh, tedious, but they're lovely. And some people have the knack. Some people just have the knack of growing them, but not me. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of begonias, either. Well, I, I don't have massive amounts of begonias. I, I literally, I, people keep trying to make me grow more begonias, but yeah, they are quite, for me, I, they're not my home plant. I'm more of a sort of a cacti and succulent type of person, really, and Hoyas and Gisneriads, so yeah. But I've got a bit of everything, as you can imagine. Any more questions before I let you all go and release you into this sunny afternoon? Seriously, please come and take a plant because I can't take them home with me. Um, oh, question coming up. So, yeah, with your podcast, you have quite the extensive backlog. What's the most surprising thing you've discovered on your journey? That's a really good question. The most surprising thing is that there is such an appetite for knowledge about house plants and that people assume that you know you get a plant and that you might just i don't know find out the name of it but that people's enthusiasm is just never ending like the more you get into it the deeper you go and i thought four years ago i knew quite a lot about house plants and i realize now that there was just so much more that i uh, the journey that i'm on of discovering more has been um so exciting and just the, also that people are just very generous and i love the way that house plant people are so keen to help other people out and uh, with information and cuttings and spread this wonderful world and just also just plants continue to totally blow my mind you know I've had some amazing guests on the show telling me about amazing plants and they're just incredible I mean you know I've been exploring the world of extra floral nectaries recently extra floral nectaries are basically points on a plant that aren't flowers that produce nectar and oftentimes it's to do with a relationship with um, something like an ant where the plant kind of develops a symbiotic relationship with an ant and the, the ant sort of protects it and I, I'm now looking with a, mat, with, a, with a glass on a lot of my plants checking out which ones have got extra floral nectaries I mean Jeff's probably Mr. you probably know like 
a million things about this, but it's a really, like, there's just these incredible things that plants can do that we, we don't really understand. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions out there. So I found that really fascinating to just kind of delve into that and find out that um, we've got a lot more that we need to learn and hopefully inspire some people to become botanists and answer some of these questions that we don't know the answers to. So... Yes, that's, that's the exciting thing for me. Well, I'm going to stop now, unless anyone's got another burning question. Please come and take a plant so I don't have to take them home. And thank you very much for joining me. And there's some stickers in there as well, if anyone is a, likes stickers. And um, I hope that's been vaguely entertaining and educational. And do listen to my podcast if you haven't already, if you're not already sick of the sound of my voice. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's all for this week's show. I'll be back next Friday. Keep your peckers firmly in the up position. Remember to breathe and set aside just a few minutes a day to enjoy your plants. Bye. The music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops. The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Young by Komiku and I Snost I Lost by Dr. Turtle. The ad music was Dill Pickles by the Pefto Banjo Orchestra. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit janeperone.com for details. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.